welcome back to the K-12-ish podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I'm with Zachary Silverzweig, who is the founder and CEO of Tiny Ivy, which is looking to reinvent how students read and maybe even create a new alphabet along the way. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Anna. Great to be here. Yeah. So one of my first questions I had for you is, Prior to founding Tiny Ivy, I saw that you worked in the healthcare tech space. And so how did you end up in education? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, um, I was a CTO and head of product in a healthcare technology company for nine years, actually. And, you know, what happened was I, I sort of grew up in that, uh, in that role. So I've always been a social entrepreneur. I've always wanted to find something where my work was, you know, fulfilling on multiple levels and really trying to give back as much as we could. And, uh, you know, after I had my son, I spent a lot of time as any parent would working with him on letters and sounds and trying to teach him, you know, uh, first his colors and his shapes and eventually his letters and then, you know, eventually how to read. And, um, you know, and I really just became frustrated with that process. It was really, you know, it's, it's almost like a Shark Tank episode. Like I just, I was trying to do it myself and I felt like there, there had to be a better way. It had to be a better product. I used a couple of the apps that were available and, you know, and, and I, um, I wasn't a healthcare expert when I started in healthcare technology, where it, what I think my sort of unique skill set is, is around listening to uh, folks that aren't used to using technology. So when I was working in healthcare, I was working with nurses and they're not really used to uh, using technology in the same way in their business as a lot of other people do in their work, right? Like they're, they're there to put bandages on and to uh, help with patient care versus, uh, you know, using a computer or a tablet. And, and so translating what they needed into a product was always kind of my specialty. Um, and I feel like that same skill set is what I'm trying to bring to education, except here it's really around what does a child need to learn? And what's the right reading product from the child's perspective? And how can you sort of figure out something that really is going to work for as many kids as possible? Because, you know, right now, as, as you all know, right, 65% of the kids uh, are not reading at grade level. And that was before the pandemic. And they're not even going to measure it this year. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's, I think there's a lot of work that has to be done in the space. Absolutely. And so, because you mentioned like going through it with your own son. So I've worked in education and I spent a lot of time working with English language learners and I can attest to how difficult it is to explain English and how to read it. It's I'll explain a rule to them and then we'll get to the next sentence. And I'm like, okay, but that rule doesn't actually apply (laughs) here. So you're taking this, what's really, really complex. So how did you go about developing the pedagogy behind Tiny Ivy? Yeah, there's a few, a few different components. So I'd say, you know, at first it was this idea of let's just indicate the right sounds, right? My son couldn't decode words like is and was, and you're, you know, they come up a lot in print. And so it was like, let's just give him a little accent mark here or there to, to help with that. And then the next question for me was, okay, well, how, how can I create content for him using marks that he already has learned, right? So like that S making the Z sound, how can I get lists of words that have that or the A making the A sound? And I'm a, uh, you know, a bit of an engineer. And so I started working on this algorithm that decoded the dictionary and basically broke down the words and their IPA pronunciations and mapped them all back together to figure out what the, if you, if you sort of had to set up a one-to-one correspondence between letters and sounds, what would it look like? What would it optimally look like? And that data set then let us figure out, okay, well, what are the most productive letters and sounds? What could I teach you that's going to give you the most reading value, uh, especially for an early reader using a corpus of early reader texts? 
And, and so we structured, you know, much of the pedagogy around kind of introducing those really high value letter sound combinations early. Um, and then over time, it's been a really iterative process, right? We had, uh, you know, my, my first experience was up in Harlem at the after school program and learned a lot about, you know, how, how well kids can pick up the tips, which was very, very fast. They pick up the letter sounds really fast, but there's still a lot of uh, phonological awareness, a lot of blending, a lot of like uh, real, you know, reading skills, word attack skills that they need to work on. So we started to incorporate those earlier on. Uh, eventually, uh, Bryony Burley, who's our uh, founding educator, uh, joined forces with me and she brought a really great view of uh, social emotional learning. Uh, she's got, you know, wonderful content that's sort of STEM oriented. And so uh, very kinesthetic as well in terms of trying to get kids to move and stand up and to you know, sort of uh, engage in a multi-sensory experience a bit. So so really what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the best of, you know, the, the established science of reading research. And there's some really, really great stuff out there. But the one piece that people haven't locked onto yet is this idea that, you know, if you learn a transparent alphabet, you can learn to read three times faster, right? And so by just adding these tips and you, and you get, you know, 10 tips, 10 tips on top of your 26 letters and you can decode 30,000 words. So it's not even like you need to teach, you know, 40 or 50 different things. It's like you just have this, this little tiny addition and it, and it makes a world of difference. And so you're saying tips, like I, I was looking into Tiny Ivy, and so those are those little demarcations above the letters, correct? Could you explain those more to the listeners? Yeah, so it's uh, so tips are uh, it's Tiny Ivy phonics system. So what our system is is a series of diacritics, a series of accent marks, uh, the same way that the N in Spanish could be an N or an N Y, or you have a C in French that could be the soft C, like the or a hard C sound, like the C in race, for example. So in our system, if you came across the word race, the A would have a bar on top to indicate the long A sound, and the C would have a sedia underneath it to indicate that that should be a soft C, should be pronounced as an S. And like I said, there's about uh, 10 of these tips to get through more than half of the words in English. There's about uh, 20 of these tips to get through like 95% of the words. And what happens is it, it really transforms the decoding process. Right. So people that, that love phonics and phonics based approaches and, and a lot of the science there, they still know that the phonics based approach is complicated. It still has rules. It has, you know, ideas around like soft and hard uh, vowels, long vowel sounds and how you double consonants and A before A vowel uh, consonant E pairs and when they happen and they don't. Sometimes they do. And a lot of this comes back to your point. Right. A lot of this goes back to the, the origin of the country and the time period that the word was coming from. It's uh our language is like a historical guide to English more so than like a pronunciation guide. And, you know, so, so yeah, so that's, so that's really the system is by, by creating those marks, all decoding becomes very simple CBC decoding. It becomes left to right decoding where the children don't have to look ahead. They can just kind of work through each letter naturally. And what happens is that they start to develop uh, sight word reading skills on their own. So it's not, it's not the same process that you typically use where you've got to memorize exception words and there's rote memorization and there's these different memorization games they have this ability to decode and they approach every word that way until eventually they know that word by heart and uh and that's that's kind of the beauty of the system is that the, the children end up doing a lot more of the work and they do it really successfully if you forget that word that you've uh, learned how to sight read you're kind of stuck, right? Like there's, you can't go back, but with our system, you can constantly reinforce through uh, repeated decoding. So it's a, it's a constant intervention to kind of keep you on the right track. 
And you know, what's really interesting. I studied Arabic in college. And so you may or may not know this, but Arabic has those demarcations on all of their letters. And so when I was studying Arabic, everyone was like, oh, this must be so hard to understand. I'm like, well, it's a different alphabet, but it's way easier to read because you have a essentially a map of how to pronounce it right in front of you. So like as someone who's learned a new language using that, I can attest to how valuable that is. It, it helped me reach a level of proficiency I would not have been able to reach otherwise. Exactly. So I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up that example and, and you've had that experience, right? Uh, there's 300 million people across the earth that learn to read in languages that are, are taught to kids exactly how we're teaching this. Right. So it's it's not a it's a not it's a completely novel concept in English. The idea that all children's books should be written with these accent marks and diacritics, which is really what I believe, um, you know, that's that's seen as like very audacious and very uh, revolutionary. But for you know, 1500 years, it's how it's how other languages that are uh, orthographically complex have been taught, right? If you're, if you have an alphabet that doesn't communicate enough information that are, uh, an early reader or foreign language learner can read it, then every other language like that in the world created a system to make it easier for people, except for English. We're the only people that didn't, that didn't do that. So it's a, it's a really ironic, um, situation to be in, but, you know, fortunately, I think we've now got something that really, um, really seems to work. We had, uh, we had nine teachers working with us in pilots in the fall, and uh, the results were exactly what we expected from the research, right? So we saw uh, 370% faster progress than the norms data on letter sound awareness. Uh, we had, you know, we, we started off and 75% of the group was below the 25th percentile. When we ended, 75% was above the uh, 50th percentile. So we just we're like flipping the curve on you know early reading skills, and I think as more students kind of continue to go through the program and uh, more teachers give it a chance, I think there's going to be a real groundswell of uh, momentum for us. Absolutely, and so that was one of my next questions: is what's the de- the deployment model for Tiny Ivy? How are you guys reaching students? So it sounds like you're going into schools. Yeah, the goal is to go to schools. You know, and, and me as a as a sort of social entrepreneur, you know, our our business mission is to bring this into Title One schools, right? Title One schools, charter schools. That's the the group of kids that need the help the most, and so that's where where we're at. Um, you know, we're offering the program free for a year for the schools that sign up early, so it's very easy to get started. Um, you can go to the website, you can register, and we'll set you up with a training. It takes about an hour for a teacher to come up to speed in the system, and you know two hours in, you're ready to give your, your first lesson to your class. Uh, we've developed uh, digital tools for teachers. So we have like a virtual portal that a teacher can use. We've got flashcards, we've got worksheets, we've got leveled readers. And then for parents that are interested, we have a digital game. Um, you know, it was originally created to be part of a blended learning environment for teachers. So it's, it's a very kind of academic focused game, but um, you know, it, it is a fantastic tool in getting kids to understand the system, to practice the letter sound, to learn all of our tips and, and to kind of take those first steps. Yeah. So when you bring it to teachers, what is their usual reaction to it? Cause it's so different from how things have been taught prior. I would say, uh, the, the most common reaction we get is why didn't I think of this before? <laughs> that was, that was really what we've been hearing a lot of. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a, Right. We're, we're entering a world where like all every teacher already has a method that they've used to teach kids how to read right that's everybody who's in a class is, is doing that currently 
and they've probably tried one or two things. You know, certainly they're aware of the, the whole language blended and uh, phonics-based approaches and kind of thinking about all of the different models that are out there. When you get into the more you know specialized programs, we have a lot of people that are coming from like an OG background or uh, are using foundations or reading and writing project. And so there's definitely you know a, a huge ecosystem of how how kids are already being taught that we're sort of working through. Um, but I think what's what's really interesting is that you know no one says that they've seen this before and this hasn't worked, right? And you think about like what what's been the last new thing to come into the reading, like come into literacy instruction? What was the last new invention, new innovation that came to, you know, teachers around like, how do we really teach differently? How do we do something different for our students? And, you know, the phonics whole language conversation has been going on for 30 years. And, you know, for 30 years, we've basically had a stagnant number of kids that were, you know, reading at grade level. So, um, you know, you would think if either of those were vastly superior, if there was like a real, um, uh, draw that, that we would have gotten to a different place, uh, sort of as a, as a nation, when you look at the national statistics. So, you know, I, I think there's just a lot of excitement, really. There's, there's people that are thinking like, wow, this is really new. Um, I haven't seen this before. And, and then I get the question, like, does this really work? Will this really work? Can this really work? And, uh, you know, I, we're, we're lucky that we found the nine teachers, you know, really innovative people, uh, to sort of take that first step with us in the fall. And we're very hopeful that the data set that we've collected from those teachers is going to be really helpful for the next 50, right? Like the first, the first 10 are always the, the hardest to find and the next 50 we're hoping are a lot, um, you know, can feel more comfortable because they could see that data. Yeah. And so was there anything from that group of those first nine teachers that really surprised you? I mean, I, one, one surprising result was that the, it surprised me how hard it was to measure, actually. That's what was the hardest part. It surprised me how hard it was to measure. Uh, there aren't, you know, we use, we use the Dibbles framework and that's, you know, there's a lot of benchmark data and everything. Um, but when you get into those very first steps of reading, that sort of letter sound to those first couple words, there's actually a real, uh, sort of precise series of milestones that kids go from, you know, knowing one letter sound to being able to decode words. There's, there's probably 30 or 40 micro milestones along that journey. And, you know, I think some of the assessment frameworks focus on, on later reading skills that are harder to measure at that sort of early level. So what ended up happening for us was that we had a lot of students that were unable to score at the outset that then scored in the 70th percentile, you know, eight weeks later. Right. And it was uh, it was a beautiful thing to see. And these kids are definitely, you know, they're, they're making huge progress. Uh, but it's it, the math just becomes a little bit tricky because they're, they're moving through this phase that doesn't have like a really precise measurement framework. around it. Yeah, it makes me think of that. That saying that's like, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so it's like if you can't measure it at those early, like you want to be able to track that progress at those early stages. You don't just want to see that big jump out of right. nowhere at the end. Right. And, and, you know, I, I do think that's one of the things that we did find was that there, there seems to be this inflection point at around six weeks in our program. So if you're, you know, you're teaching kids letters and sounds and you're working through blending and, and decoding and the progress on those two fronts sort of culminates at around six weeks where the child has enough letter sound knowledge and enough blending knowledge that they can really read on their own. 
and they can start to decode, you know, thousands of words. They can read their own books, like short books, but, you know, books with like 30 or 40 words, like Bob style books with words they haven't seen before. And they can do that really, really effectively. And, and, it, and that's, that's kind of the moment. Like as soon as they're there, they, then they take off because every step forward from that point on is just marginal improvement on skills that they've already learned, right? When you normally teach kids reading, you, you learn letters and sounds, you learn blending, you learn decoding, but then you learn some exceptions and then you learn some, you know, uh, syntax roles and then you learn some spelling roles and then you learn some more exceptions. And it's, it's kind of always this like two steps forward, one step back. Whereas for us, once you learn those letters and sounds, you learn blending and it just, you just keep going, you know, you can just keep going. So this makes me think of, you mentioned social and emotional learning earlier. And a big part of that is teaching students to have a growth mindset and to understand that they might not understand something yet, but they will get it eventually and to work through that process of learning. And I know you mentioned that one of your colleagues had a background in SEL as well as STEM. And so I'm curious how those have been infused into your curriculum. Yeah. Well, I think at the at the most fundamental level, right? what's what's powerful about tips in our program is that kids are so successful right they they are learning in a way where they can really get the right answer 99% 95% of the time 90% of the time depending on what you put in front of them and the the curriculum is totally sequenced so that they are always successful as they take those steps forward and i think you know we we saw this in the data we saw a reduction in the error rate on decoding of 50% right so they were getting the answer right you know, twice as often as they were before. And it was, um, you know, what that does for your self-concept and your, you know, your feeling of uh, confidence as you're approaching text, I think it's fantastic. For the curriculum itself, it's, it's broken down into different units. And so what we do is we have a different uh, social emotional focus for each of the different, uh, for each of the different units and each of the different sections. Um, and I think to your point, you know, one of the ones that is the most important is this idea of self-monitoring and self-regulation and, uh, self and, and like correction, right? So we, we do a lot of sort of explicit instruction about the idea that, you know, you, you can correct and you can sort of make a mistake and it's okay to make a mistake and you can come back. But what's nice here is again, they've got, they've got that constant intervention. They know that they've made a mistake. They can come back to the word. If it doesn't make the right sound, right? If they decode with a long E instead of the, the uh, S sound, they can sort of think, okay, well that, that didn't make sense. Let me go back to the word. Let me look at those letters again. Oh, okay, that doesn't have a bar. That's an N on E and, and kind of work through that mental Rolodex and, and have a successful experience that way. Yeah. That, I think that those sorts of learning experiences are so powerful for students because the way our current curriculum is set up, it's like, if you get it wrong, okay, you got it wrong, move on. You're wrong. You don't know it. And so to give students the ability to just go back and be like, okay, why did I get it wrong? Let me fix it. And then they get it correct the next time. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I go, I think about math a lot too, right? Like a lot of ways reading is a math problem. It's, uh, it's a probability. So when I'm getting to a letter, there's a probability that it's going to have a certain sound. And for a lot of the letters that the, the high, like the leading option is less than 30%. That was what that algorithm that I created sort of figured out was that, you know, if you have an E that you come across, your best bet is to stay silent, right? The mo- most often it's pronounced silently. Um, after that it's N, after that it's E, but like those sounds only have a 25% correspondence with the letter. So, you know, you really are in a position as a child where you can make, you can make so many mistakes and it's so easy to make mistakes. So, um, you know, I, I just imagine if like one plus one equal 
too, except when there's an exception because you're doing multiplication or, you know, if you tried to create the same set of rules, it would be absolutely impossible to learn. Uh, That's a great way of thinking about it too, as that math problem. I really like that. So my last question I had for you is obviously you're relatively new to education, right? You came in through healthcare. So what has your work now taught you about education that you didn't know before? I, I didn't realize how poorly funded schools were. I didn't realize that. That's been a real eye opener to me. You know, and, and you, you sort of understand, you come to understand the price points for different things that teachers and schools are able to purchase and seeing what those numbers are um, and how, seeing what those numbers are and, the, and, the, uh, and what the budgets look like for schools and how much they can spend per student and, and how much of that is really flexible towards uh, technology or innovation, I think was, was really, really eye-opening. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that's come up that I think is, an interesting challenge for for education is that there doesn't, I haven't found, there doesn't seem to be a very well organized way to innovate, right? So I, I come from healthcare and in healthcare, you have teaching hospitals. They are constantly being presented with new drugs. They're constantly being, learning new procedures, medical procedures. We're, you know, introducing Da Vinci uh, surgery technology and fancier MRI scans. And so, there's this constant introduction of new technology in healthcare. And there are academic universities that are, you know, really top tier that are learning how to use those things, coming up with the best practices and disseminating that everywhere else. And you know, a single small study in healthcare can go, can become like wildfire practice across the entire industry relatively quickly. Uh, and so what, you know, I think one of the, the, the questions I have, or one of the things I'm still trying to explore, maybe there's pockets of this and I haven't found it yet, is to find like, where do the really innovative teachers hang out? Where are the, you know, administrators that are, are taking one classroom out of their school and saying, you know what, every year we're going to have one classroom that's going to try something different because we want to see what's possible. We want to see if there's a better way. We want to get used to sort of using that muscle. One of the silver linings of COVID, I think, is that schools have become you know, incredibly adept at change right? by, by force. But, uh, but the, you know, the, the benefit of that is that I do think that there's going to be a lot more sort of openness and willingness and capability, right? change readiness that, uh, that folks can bring to you know, try to some new things. So I'm excited to see that uh, sort of play out. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful too about the future. I think you're right. It's it's difficult to institute change in education and and I've met a lot of really innovative educators along my journey in education and within ed tech, but I've like it's it's individuals out of school. It's that person who's like trying to push for it, at least from my experience and rather than it being like that academic institute where they're just studying new technology as you mentioned so that might be something to create in the future but (laughs) (laughs) well and it's been super fun to have uh you know our our group on board we do this office hours call and so we have all of our teachers come in and they're sharing their stories and uh we're really you know i think building that network and and i i absolutely believe that they're out there you know i absolutely believe that they're out there i know that um it's just you know so we're we're hopeful that we can kind of put out the honey and have the butterflies come in and uh, make it all work. 
Exactly. Great. So this last section of the interview is just some rapid fire questions. Um, no right or wrong answer. Just kind of wanted to get some, some interesting takes from you. So the first one I had was what's the strangest reaction someone has had when you say that you want to make a new alphabet? Uh, either you're crazy or this is crazy. Somebody said that. They were like, either you're crazy or this is crazy. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think that's really, you know, that's where a lot of people start, right? It's, it's a big deal to change something that's so fundamental. Um, but it's it, like, like you mentioned, right? 300 million people are learning to read with this kind of support system. So it's, it's also not as novel as it seems. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're a little uh, focused on our uh, our own sort of culture and uh, cultural norms. Exactly. So I know you have a family. So what's your favorite quarantine hobby you've uh, instituted with your family? Uh, we love to build and engineer with cardboard and duct tape. We make all sorts of things out of the Amazon boxes that get delivered for everything else. So uh, we made a, a cockpit for a space shuttle recently, and that was uh, it fit both Harper and Conrad. And, uh, and we had an awesome couple of days playing with that thing. Should pitch it to SpaceX. Um, <laughs> what's been one of your favorite moments you've had with a student? Oh, this was definitely Aaron. Um, we, uh, you know, I was working with, uh, in my, in my first pilot group and one of the students was a clear bully in the class. It was too old to be there. Um, you know, but academically that was the right place for him to be. And he knew that he was out of place there and, uh, you know, took all the attention was really, really, really tough. Made the social dynamic for that class super hard. Three weeks later, he's finishing his assignments first in class and, and he cared and he was, he was having fun and he was doing the work and he was reading and he was no longer that kind of standout troublemaker in that moment. And, um, I really believe that he had never gotten the answers right on a reading worksheet before that he had always been moved forward in the class. Like you were talking about without ever like getting, getting there. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, like with tips, it was easy. It took the barriers down. You know, this, uh, one of the things we look at is cognitive load in, in reading and the cognitive load of learning with tips is massively less than the cognitive load of learning without them. And so it was just an easier activity. So it's, it's easier to get kids engaged. It's easier to have them be successful. And the, you know, the, what that changed in him for, for that period of time, I thought was, was the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay. Last one. So because this is about reading, I wanted to know what your favorite book is. Oh, great. Uh, I really like, uh, I'm debating to give the personal answer or the business answer. I'm going to give the personal answer, which is uh, Master and Commander. Uh, okay. the, uh, that series is uh, Patrick O'Brien. And what I like the most about that book is that he uses a lot of very technical seafaring terms, and he doesn't explain it. He doesn't explain any of them. And the idea is that you're kind of wrapped, you're, you're like sort of brought on the boat without, uh, without any formal education. And they're going to use these terms around the boat. And you've just got to pick it up while you're reading through these stories and you're, you sort of are, are living through that adventure. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. Love it. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. So where can the listeners find you? Yeah. So uh, if uh, I think the best place would be to go to tinyivy.com. 
Uh, you can sign up for free with, uh, to use the program with, uh, with students in your class. And uh, if you're a parent, you can find the game on the App Store. It's called Reading World. Uh, so if you search for Reading World, you'd find it there. Or again, go to tinyabby.com. There's links to everything. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, it's at Read with Tips. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you this morning. Wonderful. Thanks, Adam.